welcome, welcome, welcome uh, to uh, this Earth Talk, Schumacher Cottage's Earth Talk, uh, and a very warm welcome to you all. Great pleasure to have you here, and we're honoured to have Sean Chamberlain and Rob Hopkins, who are going to be sharing some anecdotes and stories about that extraordinary individual who unfortunately passed away six years ago, David Fleming. An extraordinary individual, as you will be elaborated upon later on uh, through this talk, but someone who was critical uh, for the New Economics Foundation, for the Seoul Association. It was in his basement where the Green Party got established at their first office. And of course, was very influential uh, in the transition movement as well. Um, but uh, more about David Fleming, uh, and indeed a, uh, a rare bit of footage as well uh, to boot for this evening. Um, so, very much looking forward to this. Uh, a warm welcome, and over to you, Sean. Thank you. Um, so, I'm quite interested to get a sense of why you're here. Um, you know, whether you know David's work, whether you've heard about it, what it is. So, I'd like to invite you to begin with to just turn to your neighbour um, and for five minutes just explain, discuss what you're doing here, what brought you here, what you're interested in, and then we'll hear back from some of you and hopefully we can bring in some of those threads into the, uh, the remainder of the evening. So if you're sitting next to someone you know really well, maybe turn the other way. And, um, and yeah, I'll, uh, I'll shout you about two and a half minutes in case someone's hogging the conversation. Um, so please, have a chat. <laughs> or rather, I apologise for bringing you here when you've got so much to do. <laughs> I should turn on my thing as well. Um, yeah, there's a lovely. There's a, there's a, I remember him telling me, you know, saying about the things he was involved in here. And then he tell you, he must, he must tell me this part in the downfall of Oh God, I think he hinted at it. I don't think I ever heard the full story. He said there was some sex scandal or something. Or Oh, when he was supposed to be a master. Yeah, so they hired this guy, <laughs> and uh, it turned out the son of this big expose of his wife had been an exotic. Oh, the son, not the son. Right? Yeah. The newspaper. His expose of his wife had been an exotic model. <laughs> right. And so, there, and so therefore, it was a whole big scandal. The headmaster and his wife had picked out the school. Yeah. It was a big sort of body blow to school. So then they David was like an MTR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they That's hired David. To, to, to reboot uh, the reputation of Dublin. So he hired this, like, this sort of suite in this uh, London hotel, right. invited all the press, and the bedroom the press, and the whole thing. And he was supposed to start at mid-day, and the flat was right and no one was there at all. And mid-day, no one was there at all. So he looked out the window, and in front of the hotel, there's this massive scrum of press photographers and journalists. And so they went downstairs, and the wife, who had been kicked out, had turned up wearing a new coat and nothing else. I was in front of the hotel, modelling for the press. He said that was it, after the end of the school. It's finished. Yeah, you had the talent for that. All right, that's about halfway. So if someone's hogging, turn around. Who are you? 
I'll, I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, after we hear back from a few people, I'll offer you to say some things about David in general. Yeah, 10-15. I wanted to prepare something really... That seems very David somehow. I'm not sure you ever finished preparing anything ever. So it would be great to hear from some of you about um, what's brought you here, or not, you know, if you just want to sit there. Anyone, or if you like, you can dob in the person who you're talking to about what's brought them here, <laughs> if, that's, if that's less, uh, less daunting. Sean's not here anymore, he's gone back to Barclay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, look, this is an opportunity, let's take it. And he's like, no. So, yeah, anyway. To find out more about that, 
I, I'm familiar with text, which is an amazing mm. thing, but I don't know about the rest of David's work, so it would be nice to get a sense of it. Yeah, text is another aspect of David's legacy, which is uh, tradable energy quotas, which is basically the original idea of carbon rationing that he came up with back in 1996, uh, or first published on in 1996. Uh, so that's a whole other area of his work. Any more hands out there? <laughs> it's the front row. We know why you sat there. time where Sean and David met about a decade ago here in Schum at, well, at Schumacher College and, uh, and Rob was part of that experience in a course that was called Life After Oil, as was Nick. There are a few of us here. So it seems quite um, sort of like I say, profound that a decade later, here we are, David unfortunately not with us, but so much having happened to bring his life to work and Rob and, and particularly Sean having sort of taken up David's mantle and brought it to where it is. So yeah, so I'm just here to witness that lovely <laughs> Wonderful. Anyone here for a completely left field reason <laughs> that they totally wouldn't expect? They just got lost and they're wandering the way to the zoo or? <laughs> When's the band on? <laughs> yeah. I did almost say that when I came, but I always wanted to see what Rob put into it like. <laughs> <laughs> it's that guy there in the third row. Yeah. <laughs> I've read lots of his books and I've watched his transition works and been part of Transitions List Odd, <laughs> which says no more, of course. But yeah. Cool. Awesome. I think we can manage that. Job done, I guess. Anyone else? Should we move on? Do we have an autograph session now? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been wanting your autograph for so long. <laughs> okay, great. Well, that gives us a bit of a sense of what's brought some of you here. We'll be hearing more from you all later. So, um, so Rob, I thought I'd hand over to you and maybe you could say something about your relationship with David and his influence on you and his legacy and okay. what David means to you in general, really. So uh, I first came across David in 2005 when I had just first moved uh, here and I was really interested in resilience and I was doing reading around the whole thing of resilience. It was very early on in the kind of putting together of transition as an idea. And someone said, oh, you should talk to David Fleming. He's the, he's, he's the man on resilience. So I rang David up and he was genuinely fascinated that anybody was even faintly interested in him at all. And, uh, and we talked for about an hour and a half, and he said, oh, I'm working on something, I'll, I'll send it to you. And then about two days later, this came through my letterbox, which was the draft of what he was then working on that was then called The Lean Economy, The Survivor's Guide to a Future That Works. And I still contend that actually, if this had been published at the time, it, was, it, was, it really deeply uh, influenced many of us who got copies of it. It's a bit like some people talk about when the Sex Pistols played the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. And, uh, and about like 2,000 people claimed to have been there, but there was only actually about 50 people. And, and you've got yours to prove it. And actually then, you know, there's a great film about Joy Division where they trace the whole history of the regeneration of Manchester back to that concert and the people who were there, and then they formed record labels and bands, and then the whole story moved on from there. And, and this had a similar kind of impact on, on those of us who got it. And... Um, uh, a few, years, uh, a few years later, there was a guy called Henrik who ran a website where he had this idea where he was going around the world and interviewing 
sort of thinkers on sustainability up trees. So basically, <laughs> you had to go with him, and he'd find a tree before he did the interview, and then he would take you up this tree, and you'd climb and sit in the tree, and then you would do an interview sitting in the tree. I nearly died getting out of the tree, but he took me up on Veer Island. We did it up on Veer Island. Well, I don't want to say there's a connection, but it was about a month before David died that he yeah. was on. <laughs> so, he, so, so this guy took a 69-year-old David Fleming up a tree. And in, and, and in that interview, David said, I keep getting constant flack from, from friends and people, people pointing me in the street. See that poor fellow over there? He's been writing this book for the last 20 years. He'll never finish it. But then they say, he's a nice fellow, just don't mention the book. <laughs> I'm in real trouble, he said. So he had, this book was, a, was something that he had been working on and working on and working on. And he was somebody who was incapable of, of, of having a deadline. And, mm. and sort of publishers were always sort of talked about as being something that was in the wings, but never quite happened. And I don't think ever would have happened because he could never quite bring himself to finish it. And we kept saying, David, you must publish it, publish it, publish it. And it was the lean economy for about three years. And then I met him one day and he said, Rob, I'm, I'm, I'm completely redoing the book. <laughs> he said, I'm going to redo it as a dictionary of, I'm going to call it lean logic, and I'm going to call it a dictionary of environmental manners. I said, David, who even knows what a dictionary of environmental manners is? And who's going to even want one? And uh, anyway, but actually, I think it's fantastic because this book is much more like David Fleming's brain works. Um, I, I don't know if, did anybody come to the talk he gave in Totnes about nine years ago? Michael was there. We were there. He was supposed to talk for 40 minutes and he went on for about an hour and a half. And I was sitting in the front and I'm going, and he'd go, oh, there's Rob again telling me to stop. <laughs> and then he'd be off again. And then I'm going, David. And he went on and on and on and on. And, uh, but actually, when you hear him speak, he would sort of speak at this incredible pace, which was challenging enough when English was your first language. But he talked at the Transition Network conference, where quite a few people weren't. And I reread the blog I did of that event. And there was one bit where it said, I had, there were huge sympathies must be extended to the poor woman in front of me who was transcribing the talk. <laughs> and people kept saying, could you slow down? And he'd slow down for about a minute and then speed up again. And he said at one point, um, I'd be amazed if I can explain this next bit in a way that I can understand it. <laughs> <laughs> because his brain worked so much faster than he was able to actually kind of keep up with it. And, and, so, and, I, and I hadn't got round to starting to read these until a couple of days ago. I've dipped in and out of lean logic, but Survive in the Future... And actually, on the, on the printed page, it, he's just so, such a beautiful writer. Absolutely beautiful, sort of turn of phrase, the way that he can put everything together. Um, he has a, a dazzling mind. He was one of the sharpest, cleverest, well-read men I ever knew. And uh, he had this incredible, um, for me what was so brilliant was at the time when all the debates were around sustainability, and it's an economic thing, and it's an energy thing, and it's a process that needs to work. David brought it back to saying, it needs to be about conviviality. And where's the space for carnival? And where's the space for music? And where's the space for good food? And where's the space in which we sort of uh, tell each other poetry? I remember asking him once, what gives you hope, David? And he said, Bach. <laughs> and we had a really interesting conversation where I said, well, I don't really get classical music very much. And you know, for me, actually, it's, it's much more recent music that has the same effect, and he couldn't get that at all. And so I was trying to explain to him how actually, for me, 
Joy Division or something has the same impact on me that Bach has. I think you mm. quite get that. Mm. But actually, music really kind of runs through. He also introduced me to a whole kind of literature of stuff that I, I guess for him, that, that strand of, that, that says progress doesn't always move in that kind of direction. And it's really dangerous to say everything that came before is worse than, than what we have now. And he pointed me to some of the really great sort of bits of resilience literature. There's a book called a Worm F The Worm Forgives the Plough about a sort of a, a kind of a townie guy uh, at the beginning of the Second World War going off to work on farms down in Devon and having to learn how to be a farmer. And he had absolutely no clue about anything and learning to make hay ricks and everything. It's beautiful. And I was on a good read on Radio 4 and I took this book on kind of shortly after David died and I took it on as my kind of uh, uh, sort of tribute to David and the other two people hated it. We talked a bit. It was a and, then, and then this is a beautiful book called The Wheelwright's Shop that, that David pointed me to, which is all about uh, what it took to make a cartwheel and the skills and the kind of industry and the, the craftsmanship that actually uh, was behind that kind of an industry and that sort of sophisticated system that was there to enable us to do the most basic kind of things. Um, and it struck me, actually, reading reading the book that there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion at the moment about high, about British values, which is a term that has been hijacked by people who have a rather revolting version of what that means. Uh, and for me, it's one of the things that really comes through in David's work is this beautiful sort of love of landscape and place and tradition and food. Uh, and, and yeah, that really kind of moved me, I think. I think he was the, he was the kindest, most gentlemanly person. Uh, and all his books are called The Lean This and The Lean That because he was very, very lean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you sure that's the reason? <laughs> that's I reckon. I reckon. It's not sort of called the slightly overweight, middle-aged spread economy, is it? <laughs> you know. um, but I remember he came to my wedding and, uh, and he'd, everywhere he, he went, he turned up with a copy of this under his arm. If you met him in the pub, he had a copy of Lean Logic under his arm with a pen. If you met him on the train, if you met him at your own wedding... He still had a copy of this that he was working on and had been working on for some time. Um, I, guess, I guess the rest will come out. I guess I wanted to read one little bit and then say one other thing. That a lot of I'm reading through this stuff, it, hasn't, it doesn't age at all. And I want to read this little passage which, after watching the Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton debate, uh, uh, struck me as being something that could have been written today. The art of recognising the difference between honest argument and a fraud has been in poor health of late. That's good enough for a political economy which is overflowing with the riches of oil and held together by the self-interest of the market and where there is a range of choice with plenty of ways to be right and second chances if you're wrong. But in our new, urgent world, getting it right matters more. So I'm sure other things will, will come out as we dis discuss, but I guess the thing that I really wanted to do was to thank Sean, because David's not actually uh, here to see the books published and to see, uh, and to see the beautiful, beautiful um, labour of love that this has been Sean's life over the last three years, uh, turning, David, turning David's work into this. Uh, but for those of us who really love David and, and the work that he did and really saw it and recognised its importance from... From the, first, uh, from the first time we came into contact with it. Um, I really want to thank you really deeply, uh, Sean, for, for having done this, because uh, David would be so proud if he was here this evening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you.
Well, I think on that note, and partly to cover the frog in my throat, um, we should hear from the man himself. Um, since I've been, and if anyone happens to know of any additional audio or video clips of David out there, then please let me know, because I'm going to collect them again. Um, but this is David, topically enough, talking about, and again, it doesn't really age, but talking about whether we're at a, a moment of paradigm shift. This is in an interview that was done in his, his flat in Hampstead, um, which, as we heard, was the uh, first Green Party office, I believe, in the UK. At a time of a paradigm shift on Bitcoin and climate change. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I think I think uh, like the answer to a, to a lot of questions. I think the answer to that is we are and we aren't. I think we are in the, you know, the world we're looking at is completely different from the world that you know, we've been, been brought up to suppose is okay. That is the world of the market economy, which depends on growth, um, which is not actually going to destroy the environment in any substantial way, and which has more than enough energy for the foreseeable future. We're no longer in that in, in that paradigm. On the other hand, as, as Thomas Kuhn pointed out, um, point, point out um, you know, one's not in a new paradigm until you're there. Uh, and there is a long period of, uh, of, of storm and stress uh, during which people are becoming more and more uneasy about the paradigm that they're in and about the impossibilities and the, no and, and the nominees that developed during, during that time. Um, and uh, there, is a, there, there is a time of great, great difficulty and, 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 and turbulence, like, 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 like water. Um, you know, flowing from one pool to another down, down, down the waterfall. And I don't believe that we're yet in, our, in the next pool, so to speak. I don't yet think we are yet in a, a new, in, a, in a new paradigm. For a whole lot of reasons. One is, I mean, lots of reasons. One is we, you know, you know, as the people who know about climate change, recognise that actually it is worse than is widely recognised. So there is a question about whether, whether that's soluble. There's certainly a question about whether the, whether the energy problem is, is, is soluble. Even if one goes down the optimistic route of building large um, solar arrays in the Sahara Desert and having cables around the rest of the world providing us with energy, you know, there is a good deal of scepticism about, about whether technical fixes like that, like, that, like that would work. And above all, or maybe above all, um, there is the problem about economic growth itself. I mean, the market economy absolutely depends for its structural stability on economic growth. That's not because banks wanted big uh, and, and big money, big, big paybacks. It's not because of bankers' bonuses, but nothing like that. For no trivial reason, it's just a system which is a fundamentally um, it's the fundamental nature of the system. We're living in a dynamic system, and dynamic systems are like bicycles. They only stay stable and upright so long as they're moving forward. There is no way the market economy can exist without growth. Um, and so, uh, if one, if growth were to stop um, for a substantial amount of time. Um, or still worse, if, if both were actually going to reverse, and the market economy would collapse uh, and collapse. And I leave you to imagination, imagine what that collapse would, would collapse would mean. So that if one is looking, which all, all of us should be looking for a time, looking for a time when you know, for a, a non-growing economy, and we have to have an economy which isn't growing. Indeed, we have to have an economy which has shrunk a good deal, a long way from where, where it is now. We have to have that. Unless we can do that, we're going to be in trouble. So we've had it either way. And if, 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 we, if, if we grow, if we, we, we're stuffed if we grow, and we're stuffed if we don't grow. And that means that we, we're not in a paradigm. It's very, very hard for anybody, anybody hand on heart, to say, this is the way forward. It's going to be perfectly OK, um, people. Uh, we, we, have, we have a solution. And that is what Thomas Kuhn was talking about. He was talking about a, a comprehensive par par paradigm with some tweaks that need to be developed. Um, but he wasn't talking about enormous question marks. Unfortunately, really. Uh, instead of this alternative paradigm, all we can offer really 
gives the most enormous planet-sized question marks. So, that gives you a sense of, A, David as a man, but also how many ideas would tumble out of him simultaneously when he tried to say anything, as Rob was talking about. And I think one of the... Um, one of the reasons for that was that he was inherently a holistic thinker. Um, and for him, any time he tried to talk about any topic, he found it was sort of attached to every other topic. And this is why his talks were so helter-skelter, because basically he'd be asked to speak for 20 minutes about carnival, and he'd try and say the entirety of this book. <laughs> because he was, as he says, really coming from a fundamentally different paradigm. And he talked there about economic growth and the, the difficulty of, of this damned if we do, damned if we don't situation with economic growth. Um, and really, as um, I, I did a similar talk to this in Oxford, which was David's alma mater, a few weeks ago with Jonathan Porritt, who was um, one of David's mentees. And, uh, and he was saying, really, you know, there's no political party, mainstream political party in the world that has a program for creating better lives that isn't based on continual economic growth and not just continual economic growth for a while but endless economic growth and David really engaged with that and he's probably the only person I've, I've found who has provided a vision of what the future could look like that makes sense in a post-growth world and Jonathan tells me that back in the 70s when David was involved in the I think it was the People Party and then the Ecology Party before it was the Green Party um, that back then when, when Jonathan was first meeting him he was at Ecology Party conferences and he was urging his peers we need to learn the language of economics because it's the economists who keep telling us that we can't do all these sensible things that we're advocating for um, and being true to his word by the time I'd met him he'd got himself a PhD in economics but <laughs> unlike many people he wasn't sort of shaped by that to become a conventional economist he's, it was very much, he often talked about economism, this idea that our society is obsessed with economics as the only way of finding truth or answers. Um, and really, the only reason he wanted to know economics was so that he could show how wrong economics was and how it wasn't the basis of everything. Um, and the basis um, of his alternative, really, I think, was instead of growth, we have culture. So instead of relying on, on money and economies, we rely on each other. And what he argued with a background in history as well was that this wasn't some wonderful new idea that he'd had that was going to save the world, but this was actually the basis on which almost all of human history took place. That this, this growth-based market economy has only really been around a couple of hundred years and it's already, <laughs> it's already hitting the buffers. I remember um, at one point in one of his interviews he said, uh, I don't really hold it against capitalism that it's about to collapse because... You know, civilizations do collapse, that's part of the wheel of life, but it, it is going to be quite hard for it to live down if it takes the whole of life on Earth with it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, really, it was very hard for him to go and speak for 20 minutes on X without talking about what a fundamentally different paradigm he was coming from. And that's why, in many ways, this, this weird linked dictionary format, this, this pre-invention of Wikipedia that he created... Um, suits his thought really well because you can follow the threads and the interlinks in whatever way you want. I often say it's a sort of choose-your-own-adventure book. Um, and it allows, yeah, it allows 
you to sort of think, oh, well, I don't really get why he's saying that. Oh, well, I'll follow this thread and I'll understand it a bit more and then I'll come back. And people have been telling me again and again over the past couple of months that they're reading Lean Logic and they end up with this list of, oh, I must come back and read that and then I want to read that. And they've got this sort of long list of all the entries that they want to follow up on. Um, but as Rob said, the beauty of a dictionary as opposed to David speaking is that you can pause and, and digest some of the, uh, the rich wonders on offer. Um, and in a way, I mean, Surviving the Future, the paperback, um, it's, I, I like to think of it as a gateway drug, if you like. It's, you know, it's much smaller, so it's more accessible, and it's a conventional read-it-front-to-back book, and you get that real taste of David's amazing turn of phrase and his, his vision, his incredible vision. Um, but at the same time, there is a part of me that feels a little like it does lose a little bit of the magic by making it linear. It's like I've dragged David kicking and screaming into a sort of a linear thought. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I hope that a lot of people read that and then think, oh, I want more of this, and then discover, you know, just how unconventional his thought was, not just in terms of what he was saying, but how he was saying it and how he was approaching it. Um, <laughs> and it's funny, you mentioned um, The Worm Forgives the Plough. So the, the first talk I gave on these books... Uh, Month, month or two ago was at um, the Dark Mountain event um, and I was in the toilet there, the compost toilet there um, before the talk and in front of me there was a little sticker on the wall and it had a quote from the worm forgives the plough and I found myself idly wondering whether that was in some indirect way there because of David who you know really did spread this book to an awful lot of people who'd never heard of it before so that felt like somehow his, his little blessing on me before I went on and spoke. Um, and, uh, and the other thing that you mentioned was um, this sort of Brexit situation that we're in, and that's something which has come up an awful lot, actually, over the last few weeks as I've been going around talking to people, and there's this, this real sense of <coughs> confusion and, and lostness, and what does it all mean, and where is it all going? Um, and it's been really interesting. Obviously, David died five years before Brexit was ever really uh, an, an active current issue in terms of it being voted on. Um, but for me, I was really heavily embedded in these books as the whole <coughs> Brexit situation was taking place. And it was, it was interesting for me, Brexit, because it was the first time I'd really been asked to vote on something as part of the electorate, which I didn't immediately have a clear sense of. You know, from a sort of transition-y, localising kind of point of view, I felt like, well, OK, maybe there is some sense in you know, bringing some control back down from these abstract, supranational bodies but then on the other hand I found it sort of despicable in the last like since the vote this idea that everyone who voted out was either an idiot or a racist I mean I know I know lots of people who voted out and voted out for very you know reasonable reasons um and uh and I found reading some of David's work has been really helpful to me in explaining that as Rob touched on um so I'd like to read a bit from his entry on nation in Lean Logic. A nation has an identity which connects the people who live there to a particular place and to each other. There is a landscape which many generations have shaped and defended, and there is an endowment of culture, language, and institutions which, though they can be betrayed, cannot be denied. The nation is a located, bounded, particular homeland, and if defeated, it often manages eventually to come back into being with a sense of renewal and justice. It exists in the mind of its people. 
Identity in this collective sense means that there is an identical meaning to the idea of we. And that's something as I've... In the aftermath of the, of the vote, one of the responses which I found very beautiful was a, a church in London called St Ethelburgers who held open listening days. Um, and I think it was based on a Quaker model and basically people could just come and say what they were feeling in a group of their peers. And there was no responding, there was no arguing, it was just anyone who felt anything could just come and say what they were feeling. And I thought that was a really wonderful way of healing some of these rifts and this division that our mainstream media seem to keep pushing on us, like there's this, this divided country. And, uh, and yeah, that sense, of, that sense of identity is something that I've heard a lot when I've been talking to people who voted out and why. That they felt like, well, you know, what is it anymore to be to be English or to be British or to be Scottish. And, and there was a really interesting discussion in, um, in Oxford when we were talking about the books where they were talking about the difference between how a lot of people who feel we should clearly remain in the EU feel that Scotland should clearly leave the UK and why the difference. And we were talking a lot about that sense of we and how the Scottish sense of we is much very different from the Nigel Farage sense of we. <laughs> Um, there's a, something much more inclusive as a Scottish nation there, which, which we're sort of lacking. And I think as people are casting around looking for you know, what makes sense in that post-vote world, for me, David's vision is the most compelling story of what uh, a sort of progressive Brexit could look like. Not necessarily will look like, um, but could look like, because it, it lays out... A lot of people talk about this sort of fear of fascism in times like this rising and I think it's really important to remember that people like Hitler like Mussolini they didn't just come to power on the basis of hatred and othering they also <laughs> they also blinded you with blue lights um, they also dealt with unemployment issues they improved working conditions and these are things which have an electoral appeal and I think if we're going to help the desperate in society. We need to offer an alternative to that, which also helps people who are being ground into the dirt by the current sort of neoliberal market economy. We need to offer a vision that does help the desperate, but in a beautiful way, not in a, in a despicable way. Um, and to me, David's work just lays that out. It says, you know, here's what a, a, an economy based on, on loyalty and on culture and, and on diversity at the local level could look like. Um, and that's one of the reasons I feel so proud to have been, been able to bring it to the world, because I think it's something that actually a lot of people are crying out for right now. Um, yeah, I also, <laughs> I think another thing that absolutely comes out of these books is that they're very funny. Um, he was a very humorous man. And um, one, of the, one of the threads in Lean Logic, I mean, Rob talked about his his uh, distaste for the current level of argument, particularly in our politics. Um, and one of the threads in here is that he pulls out numerous logical fallacies um, and writes about how, uh, how dangerous they are. And um, so I'd like to just read one of those. And then I think, if you're willing, um, we'll hear a bit more from you guys about you know, any threads that we've talked about, maybe which you'd like to hear more about or any other topics. Um, another thing that I did at that, um, that Dark Mountain event 
was that I was, uh, I was quite unsure how I could possibly get across the wide-ranging nature of David's work. And I thought, well, whatever I read from it is going to give this tiny fraction. Uh, and so what I did was I just got people to call out any topic at all, even if it seemed to have nothing to do with anything they knew about David Fleming, um, and then was able to pick out entries from the dictionary that, that spoke to that. Um, and you know, it's as wide-ranging as you would expect a dictionary for the future and how to survive it to need to be. So, you know, by all means challenge, you know, by all means say, well, what on earth has he got? So, like Brexit, which happened five years after his death or, or whatever, and um, yeah, we'll see what we can do. But first, this is David's entry on uh, the fallacy of distraction. Diverting attention from the argument. Consider a proposition, for example, that two and two makes four. Distraction might urge, for instance, that the idea is old-fashioned, that the time has come to move on from traditional thinking on the matter, or it's too technical for the public to understand. It could take the form of an ingratiating assurance that the only thing that matters naturally is the well-being and happiness of everyone concerned. Distraction might urge that it's perfectly okay nowadays to think that two plus two makes five, or that even thinking about it means an unforgivable neglect of the far more important proposition that three plus four makes seven. You might be invited to take note that there is money to be made by taking a different view of the matter, or that we have to move on from this notion if we are to be competitive, or that the proposition is a bit rich coming from someone with a private life like yours. <laughs> or it could insist with some passion that, contrary to the view that 2 plus 2 makes 4, we must take our place at the heart of Europe. <laughs> Distraction might add, with hoped-for finality, that the argument has already been lost. 2 plus 2 is going to make 5 in the future, whatever we do. Distraction, evidently, has the power and freedom to cause havoc wherever it likes. It is a spoiler, worse than the cheat. The cheat at least recognises the existence of the rules on which argument depends if it is to make any sense, even though he then proceeds to break them, hoping not to be found out. Distraction recognises nothing except conquest. The argument is too serious to have any connection with the orderly rules of honourable play. It will be settled by other means. Rules what rules? It presumes the death of logic. A characteristic form of distraction is to make an assertion which is not true, but which is hard to disagree with. <laughs> this happens, for instance, with that appeal to the inevitable. The distractor does not argue for or against a proposal. Instead, he simply asserts it's going to happen anyway. And he may do so in a slightly bored drawl that passes off the sellout as if it were a routine comment on the weather. <laughs> Don't stand for this. It is one of the ways in which our citizens' right to have a say in deciding for ourselves dwindles into a loss of belief that we can influence anything at all. It is designed to induce give-up-itis, an acceptance that technology and the sweep of history make the decisions. What we are then supposed to do is to surrender, to make sure we are not in the way. So, any of these threads eliciting any kind of response or interest or any other topics at all that you might like to hear something from David or from us about David on. I've got a question that <coughs> Rob might be able to answer, I don't know. Um, I've forgotten a lot of what he said about text and I remember Aubrey Mayer coming and talking about contraction and convergence and I was well run over on, on his theories. But I'm just wondering um, with the text, because he passed over about five years ago, yeah. Whether he was hearing about the um, disillusionment of the um, carbon trading in Europe for businesses, which wasn't working because they, I think they were giving a lot away to start with, 
And what's his views, if he knew about that, and what his views were on that? Um, take a few, maybe, and, yep. Text, complexity, any other random topics out there? Yeah. I, I, I was reflecting on your, your comments about um, Brexit and um, you know, wondering what you were saying. You, you were pointing out some of the, the advantages of sort of identity and so on, mm -hmm. but, but not some of the negative stuff. But I thought, you know, my own feelings were that actually whether we remain. Brexit is still predicated on, on, on growth, and that, that issue yeah. still stands. And you know, he 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 recognised that you know we were on the whole to nothing whichever way we go. Okay, so um, yeah, addressing the the growth question that everyone else is sort of ignoring. do for now but we've got plenty of time for another round maybe one more is it quick yeah it's okay. actually it was your question earlier when we, oh. did, yeah, when we were in the pub <laughs> question of when you tell your children about the profound uh, oh. you know um, situation that we face and potential consequences <laughs> mm. <laughs> wow good question ah. yeah good question Sean yeah. <laughs> um, thanks yeah um, do you want to I can speak to that one. Yeah, the question was, um, when, at what point should we speak with our children about some of the challenging things that are happening in the world, and um, yeah, what's the appropriate way to introduce them to the world that we're in? So I, I, I have kids that range from 14 to 23, and my, my sense of that one is, is that there's no rush. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing is to let kids be kids and that actually they pick up a lot through the culture already a sense of kind of, not quite despair, but a sense that, th that what lies ahead isn't great. And they pick that up in various kind of ways. And I think actually what's most important is that, is that they grow up in a space where if they encounter that they can talk about it, but it's not. They're not barraged with that kind of stuff. And that you wait until they come to you and start talking about it. And that actually the most important thing to do around that is that they grow up in a space where food is being grown and food is being cooked and conversation is being had and music is being played. And that they kind of grow up where that stuff is normal. I know in, um, in London, in Crystal Palace transition, Crystal Palace transition town, started a food market which has won loads of awards and is this amazing food market in London. And when I went up to meet them, one of the things they said was, we want our children to grow up thinking this is normal. <laughs> and so for me, I think it's what's more important than... Because if you give them... Well, what do they do with that information? 
and and it and so so for me is that they will come to a point where where they start learning about it, they start encountering it, they start with questions, and then you pick it up from there. Um, but the most important thing is that they're in a, a space where they're loved, and, and, and those other things are, are kind of every day, really. Mm-hmm. And then the other bit with that is then it, that I was is is uh, people say, what do you do with with relatives who don't get this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> like uh, like uh, we had a. Um, uh, a relative, uh, we had a big falling out with, with a relative who wanted to, because we don't fly, we gave up flying about 10 years ago, and they wanted to take our kids on holiday that involved flying somewhere, and we said that they couldn't. Mm. <laughs> big ructions. <laughs> but actually, I think what's most important is, is that there's no reason why you have to try and bring all of your family around to thinking like that. Your family, your family, and they come from different perspectives. And you work, uh, you work along with the people who you know who are more open to those ideas, I think. Yeah. I, um, one of my absolute favourite entries in Lean Logic, which I was particularly sad to not get into surviving the future, was Lean Education. Um, I was just looking at that and the, the last couple of paragraphs, he says that... Um, Homes should be recognised as children's primary centres of learning. This is homes that should take the initiative in delegating teaching to primary and secondary schools, to apprenticeships, to work experience, to freedom, to churches, universities, storytellers and bell ringers, to the whole range of learning and cross-generation conversation available to the place. This diversity is friendship's habitat. The peer group of competitive 15-year-olds can be one of the loneliest places on earth. A society that relies on it to transmit its culture and the skill of acute and benevolent attention to the unexpected is making a logical error. Lean education will not be without its awards and qualifications. They are rites of passage and useful when someone who claims to be good with animals is operating on your sheep. (laughs) But as an index of whether a person is bringing connectedness or mayhem, they are unhelpful. Local lean communities will look for and provide other qualities which cannot be expressed in simple reductionist grades. It is not about saying, this is the way to do it. It empowers households and communities to work out what they want and how to do it. This how will be radically constrained by the minimal financial resources likely available. And some small-scale places of learning, some of them called secondary schools, will form and reform for good reasons and bad, learning and teaching as they go with intense focus on the intention of what they are there to do for now. There will be the variety and disorder of a rich ecology, the sheer joy of being there, being part of the common purpose. And I think this is one of his core principles, is about, it's not about top-down, it's not about this is the right way to raise your children. It's about local communities working out for themselves what works for their children in their context, in their difficulties. Um, and it, you know, one of the things he was most scornful of, I mean, this, this lean word that he brings into everything is about this concept of lean thinking, which as he uses it, is essentially about um, the people who are involved in doing a thing, getting together and discussing and deciding how to get on with doing that thing, rather than having some top-down management or, heaven forbid, government um, doing things. There's a line in here, he says something like, uh, if we look at the track record of governments throughout history, um, if we had an elderly relative with a similar level of judgment and track record, it would be a kindness to take them into a home. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't a big fan of of government on a whole. Um, so I think that's probably 
would be his approach is, you know, trust your judgment, really, as a, as a family and as a household and as a community on what's appropriate for your child. Um, in terms of working with complexity, um, Eve and David met. I was, I was there. And um, they were very impressed with each other. Um, and uh, she invited us to come and speak on her, um, her sort of base at London School of Economics. And, um, and David ran an amazing course. And complexity is absolutely one of, the, one of the core threads that runs through this. As you'll be aware, it's something that's quite hard to distill into a, a paragraph or a, a quick line. But um, his, um, <laughs> the entry as well, he, he very much ties in complexity and, um, and resilience. And uh, his entry on resilience, he, he describes as um, the most brain-busting entry in the book. Um, but it is uh, profound, actually. It's, it's one of the most, one of the deepest entries, and that's why it has to be a bit you know, more difficult to read, perhaps, than some of the others. Um, but he, um, he often made this distinction between complication and complexity, um, and the idea that something like uh, the natural world is complex, um, that human civilization is not really complex, it's like an imitation of complexity, that it's, it's not really able to be fully complex for various reasons that he goes into. And I think there's a, a little story that I can read um, called The Story of Nos and Scarp, from, from complication back to complexity. Imagine that there is a little society with, say, four participants, they might be thought of, though not too literally, as four small villages. In order to look after themselves, they have to provide four different goods and services, bread, clothes, electricity and teaching. Now, there are two ways of dividing this work up. Each village could specialise in just one thing, sending off supplies or transporting people every day to all the others, or each could do all four things for itself. If the villages specialise, as they do in the society of Nos, there has to be a lot of swapping around, and there are lots of chances for things to go wrong. When there is a shock, for example, to the bread producer, it tends to ripple through them all. There is standardisation, there is separation between producers and consumers, and transport has to bridge that gap. It's harder to maintain a closed-loop system because the large-scale production creates a lot of waste, making it harder to sort, and users of large quantities of unsorted waste are hard to find. This is a society of separation, distance and dependency, kept going by rivers of traffic. The other little society, Scarp, doesn't like this complication. It prefers complexity. In place of separation, there is integration. Each village provides all four goods and services for itself. Each locality contains a full hands-on or hands-in culture, in touch with its own food and its own needs. It has free agency, and the interdependencies between the villages in Scarp take place across a rich range of subjects and interactions. Diverse cultures and solutions could be sustained. Instead of just one standardised procedure for baker, tailor, energy supplier, teacher, there are four variants of each. There is evolution guided by trial and error, since if one village innovates successfully, the others can imitate it, whereas if the innovation is a failure, the others are not affected. It is robust. A shock tends to be localised. If one bit gets knocked out, others can cover for it, or simply get along without. Um, yeah, there's endless amounts of complexity in here, but that gives a taste of his... His vision, it, there's, a, there's a quote from Kirkpatrick Sale who says, I wish to complexify, not simplify, in response to Adam Smith's kind of model of let's simplify everything down and get everyone doing one job, which then becomes utterly soul-destroying, of course. Um, 
and uh, maybe I should speak on text as well. It's probably more my department. Because um, I, I work particularly closely with David on, on tradable energy quotas, this carbon rationing idea. And yes, he was very aware of the, the European emissions trading scheme and everything around that and absolutely despised it. Um, it was, uh, yeah, in his mind, a completely incoherent model um, of trying to address the problem and had none of the emphasis in, in his tech scheme on, on local solutions. I think, for me, the most life-changing line in David's work is he said, large-scale problems like climate change do not require large-scale solutions. They require small-scale solutions within a large-scale framework. And that, when I first thought, heard it, I thought, yeah, yeah, right. And the more that I've sort of engaged with that in my life, the more like, all of my work since has been about providing those large-scale frameworks that allow for the diversity of local solutions. Transition, obviously, is, a, is an example of that. Um, text is designed as an example of that, although as it got taken seriously by the government as the Secretary of State for the Environment at the time did a feasibility study onto it and as civil servants got their teeth into it, it gradually got bastardised into this sort of, you know, personal level carbon trading rather than the framework for local environmental solutions that it was intended to be. Um, so yes, he was, um, he was horrified. Aubrey Mayer, who you mentioned, um, you know, he always said that contraction and convergence would need text underneath it in order to um, be implemented. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, I've been very involved with the political process around text um, and uh, sort of taken that on since David's death. And unfortunately, I think ultimately the, well, I know that ultimately the Treasury stamped on the idea, um, and in my opinion, they stamped on it because they recognise that ultimately limiting carbon emissions means limiting growth, and they don't have any way of addressing that. Um, and so, you know, while they could just think of it as, oh, well, this is just like the European scheme, but at a personal level, well, that doesn't really seem to have changed anything, so that's okay. They're caught in this bind where we've got a climate change act which says, well, we have to reduce emissions by this amount by this year, but they don't actually have any methodology for doing that. And if you speak to the people at the Climate Change Committee, which is the advisory body devoted to delivering on those targets, they say, yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of accidentally on track for the past few years because of some, some developments, but there's no way we're putting in place the things that are going to be necessary over the coming decades to achieve this. It's completely not going to be achieved. And so that was the sort of political thrust of text was, well, all text is is a way of implementing already existing laws. Surely that's acceptable, but still the Treasury realised that it would mean calling the bluff on, uh, on growth. And that's, as David was saying in that clip, not something that anyone's really ready to grapple with yet. Well, if we're swapping favourite David Fleming quotes, <laughs> my one is, localisation stands at best at the limits of practical possibility but it has the decisive argument in its favour that, that there is no alternative. <laughs> not bad, not bad. It's brilliant. I love that. <laughs> oh, is this like duelling banjos? I don't have to like talk <laughs> <laughs> But for me, what I loved was when we were starting transition and, and we're trying to do that bit of saying, okay, so if that system doesn't work and that system, the current economic model is, is a, a suicide pact and it's not going to last anyway... Then what, then what do we do instead? So what does a more localised version look like? And, what, and if we could actually start implementing it now and putting those pieces in place, 
then it makes that transition that much easier and less painful. Uh, and, I'm, and, and that that argument of saying that, that of challenging that economic idea that the bigger things are, the better they are. So companies should buy each other and get bigger and bigger and more and more massive. Going in the opposite direction is something that you need to be really kind of armed with. You need to have to good, you need to have the good arguments with you mm. for that because at the moment it's kind of countercultural. It's counter intuitive. But the way certainly the first couple of chapters of Surviving the Future, he just argues it so beautifully. Well, yeah, well, big is kind of, but actually, it also has these problems as well. And actually, if you start going another way, the advantages are this and this, and then you can bring in this, and then you can bring in that, and then you can bring in that, and the whole thing sort of works so much better. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. And that economic framework is his way of, you know, providing the large-scale economic framework that allows for the diversity of local solutions to flourish and mm. grow. And, um, and it feels to me like there's a. I was in um, uh, last week. I was in uh, in Brussels, in Belgium. And, and in France, and there's this film that we're trying desperately to get over here, this French film called Demain, or Tomorrow. Anybody seen Tomorrow? Who's seen it? Um, which has just been massive uh, in France and Belgium. Like one and a half million people have seen it and won all these awards and this stuff. It's like a phenomena in France. And, uh, and it's basically a film, David would have loved it. It's a film mm. about, uh, about resilience and, and local economies and uh, and transition, and um, yeah, and it's and it's become and, and but, but it is it's it's just got into the culture. It's really fascinating. And I was travelling on the metro, and uh, I saw one advert that said, "It's so interesting, like how these ideas from this sort of stuff seep into the culture, and then you can tell when an idea is starting to get into culture is when advertisers start to use it to try and sell you stuff." There's actually nothing to do with any of that. So one of the things that comes through the film is, you know, it's all about the power to change things. And there's an advert that's on all the underground that says, the power to change your car. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another one that was all, yeah, I can remember that. And there was another one that was, that was a, this brand of burger. They're, they're like sort of French, the Belgian version of Wimpy or something. So there's one of these crappy burger bars, like on most sort of urban corners, and it was like, your local burger, <laughs> with the word local, like, is a really big thing, you know, because that's what really comes through in the film. So, so actually, you see these ideas start to permeate, and some of them go to good places, and some of them kind of go to But actually, there is a real kind of growing, it was interesting, I was in, so I was in Namur, this place in Belgium, because they were, and we, with the guy who made the film, was Cyril, who, who made the film, and, uh, and it was the university were giving, on, on, gave honorary doctorates, to me and to Cyril. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is really like, why aren't they giving it to like a footballer? <laughs> or, like a, or like a businessman? Or an economist? <laughs> or somebody who, all of that, actually they were giving it to me and to Cyril, who were basically arguing all of this stuff. Right. And Cyril, who's made this massive mainstream film, all about all of these ideas. And that's, and that's, and that's the kind of cutting edge thing. It's so interesting to start to see how the ideas that are in here, you know, and if, if there's anything, if anybody ever writes a kind of a history of the transition town movement, there'll be a lot of David Fleming in there. Mm -hmm. And I sort of seen a lot of what I try and do is to try and make David's idea, well, I don't have to work so hard now because it's not <laughs> but for many years it was to try and make David's ideas kind of intelligible and sort of relevant to people. And, uh, and it's so satisfying when you start to see 
We always talk about how transition isn't like a, a kind of a, a, like a model where you have a sort of a, a growth thing. It's not like a mechanical linear process. It's more like you kind of inoculate soil with mycorrhizal fungus spores and then they spread and they go off to different places and you can't predict where they go and they just pop up and they fruit and they continually surprise you in terms of what pops up and where it pops up. Well, this is pretty surreal, isn't it? We're sort of publishing a book now that influenced transition mm. 10 years ago, which we're now <laughs> talking about. As it's, yeah. uh, you know, the whole timeline of it is really it's messed all up. It's a bit strange, but that's, yeah. that's David's fault, isn't it? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he, he could never do a deadline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, on that and on growth, which you were talking about, um, so obviously we're all very familiar with what David would call a, a taut economy, T-A-U-T, um, an economy in which anyone who tries to slack off um, just gets priced out of business by someone else who's working harder or more efficiently and bigger and all of that. Um, so that's the context that we live in now. And David says, how can, a, how can a community, despite all of this, be mistress of its own fate? How can it sustain this condition of slack? That is, have the freedom to make enlightened decisions and make them stick. Well, here is the good news. The normal state of affairs, before the era of the great civic societies and in the intervals between them, has consisted of political economies, perhaps better known in this case as villages, where the terms on which goods and services were exchanged were not based on price. Instead, they were built around a complex culture of arrangements, obligations, loyalties, collaborations, which expressed the nature and priorities of the community and the network of relationships and reciprocities between its members. No, don't scoff. This is what households still do. And friends, neighbours, cricket teams, magistrates, parent-teacher associations, allotment holders. This is the non-monetary, informal economy. The central core that enables our society to exist. It is outrageous to the received values of now. It is not transparent. It is non-conformist. Social mobility in it is limited. It is neither efficient nor competitive. It is full of anomalies. But it keeps things going. So back to the question, how does this political economy manage to keep such an apparently unstable regime going? Well, it turns on culture. Sheer naked loyalties and family values can only go so far. There needs to be something interesting, connecting going on too. Something to talk about, to cooperate in, to mull over, to aim for, to laugh at. There needs to be a story to tell, something to coordinate and to do together. A culture is like the upright strands that you begin with when basket making round which you wind the texture of the basket itself. No sticks, no basket. No culture, no community. It is the common culture and ceremony, the good faith and reciprocal obligations, the civility and citizenship, the play, humour and conversation which makes a living community, the cooperation that builds its institutions. Ever since Adam Smith observed that people are willing to carry out almost any service for each other despite being motivated by nothing more than commercial self-interest, it has seemed to be unnecessary and ridiculous to suppose that there is any significant role for such higher motives as benevolence. Economists simply haven't needed such concepts. Well, they do now. The economics of the future will be benignly and inextricably entangled with social capital, with intense links of reciprocity, in comparison with which the reduction of economic and social relations to the piteous simplicity of prices is not up to standard any longer and is due for retirement. In the mature settlements that could follow the shock, the tyranny of decisions being made in lockstep with competitive pricing 
will be an ancient memory. There will be time for music. Mm-hmm. And on that, I think we can hear from David again. Well, while you're setting up, I might just say this one very thing very quick. Quite early on, when we were doing transition, uh, I got invited to London by an organisation that supports people with kind of uh, interesting ideas. So they said, "You're a social entrepreneur. We like social entrepreneurs. So come up and uh, and present your social enterprise idea to our." panel of sort of successful business people and then if we like what you do then we'll give you some support sort of mentoring and this kind of thing so I went up to London in this big sort of boardroom this long room with metal table glass tables and stuff and there was about 20 people and I presented transition uh, for about 15 minutes and then there was this long silence (laughs) and this guy said so what you've done is create a very powerful brand and given it away for free to people all over the world over whom you have absolutely no control. I said, yeah, that is basically what we've done. Because I come from this, from David Fleming's world. And he said, that's mad. And I said, well, yeah, but it works. And actually what I loved so much about, and what was really lovely hearing that, was that actually, for me, the key thing I got from David Fleming was that sense of, no, you're the normal ones. But actually when you're out doing this stuff, the kind of cultural feedback is often... That's mad. But actually to say, well, that's usually how it works. That's how it's worked for Mm. thousands of years. That's how it still works in many parts of the world. Just because we live in an economy that has completely gone nuts doesn't mean that actually that's how it should always be and that that's the normal. Yeah, it's a real touchstone in that book that anyone who's doing stuff not based on the logic of the market economy. I had exactly the same conversation with our ecological land co-op work where we're basically taking on land and then winning planning permission for it and then making it available as cheaply as possible to people who want to manage it ecologically. And we had a business consultant come and say, you know you're burning money, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just have you done? We're like, go, go on. Yeah, different paradigms. Um, we tend to think whenever, whenever, whenever we talk to, to most people... Uh, well, we don't have video on this, actually. This, this is just audio. Well. Um, we tend to think whenever, whenever we talk to, to most people, the informal economy already is now. And most of the things what we're doing right now is in the informal economy. We're not getting, we're not, we're not, we're not getting paid for this. Um, our family life is informal. Our friendship is the informal economy. Most of the things that people in our kind of like, like do are part of the informal economy. We do things for each other constantly, all the time. Uh, and uh, if I were to do something, I was presenting for a friend and they would offer to pay me, I would be mortally insulted. That'd be more or less the end of it. <laughs> so if you have the outcome of the come up in the informal economy, this is terribly romantic and unrealistic. On the, on the, on the contrary, it's a very unrealistic to dismiss the informal economy as being, as being unimportant. So it's going to be a, 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 a big rediscovery of the, the, the informal economy, which is very hard, very hard to summarise. <laughs> how does it, okay, the, you're doing a lot of research about how things have worked and how, and you've obviously got ideas about how things could work, but, you know, we've got this whole financial system. Are you, you're talking about replacing that with something else? No, unfortunately, I'm not. I don't think it's going to last. I mean, I think a lot, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a right winger to, to most people's horror, horror and shock. And so I think, in many ways, the system, the system we've got at the moment is really, 
is not a bad system. I think capitalism is a, is a good thing. The only problem with capitalism is that it destroys the planet, you know, and, and <laughs> it's, it's based on growth. And apart from those little details, I'm not saying it's good. And when capitalism dies, you know, we'll be on our knees, we'll, 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 we'll wish it were back because it's a, it supports a, a high standard of living, it supports freedom. From the point of view of freedom, an incredibly free society, and that is basically to, to do with the, the capitalist system we've got. So it's a wonderful system in a, in a way, it's very efficient. It's based on pull. It's not based on authoritarian people telling other people what to do on the whole. It's based on people asking for services and paying for them. So in many ways, it's got a lot to be said in their favour. But you've got the absolute, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's got these absolutely crucial flaws, um, which is, well, the essential flaw is it depends on growth. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and it will go on, it will go on depending on growth to the point uh, which it, uh, which, uh, which it in. I, it's not necessarily an argument against a system that it collapses in, because most systems do collapse in the end, and it's a, part of the nature of the wheel of life, you know, systems do collapse, and there is life and death. So I think I, I, I'm, to some extent, slightly inclined to forgive capitalism for, for uh, being about to collapse. I mean, there are lots of fine things, there are lots of love affairs which, which are, have come to a sticky end, there are lots of novels which come to an end, and life tends to come to an end, and life itself comes to an end. You can't necessarily blame life for being something comes to an end. So I'm not really going to blame capitalism. On the other hand, it does. I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's quite quite a thing to be held with. You know, quite quite an accusation. You know, hard, hard for it to live down. The accusation is not only is it, uh, it is it is it um, based on on the ludicrous idea that growth can continue indefinitely, but it's going to destroy the entire planet with it. And that's 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 quite a lot. That's a big problem. It's a big. It's not. It's not a small problem. It's a very <laughs> fundamental problem. But anyway, the thing is, so the thing is, as, as, as um, it is uh, going to um, hit the buffers in, in this way, we don't have to you know, go around destroying things. We don't have to dismantle the banking system. As I saying, but whatever we do with the banking system, it will make absolutely no difference at all. We do not have to change, reform things. In, I'm not a reform. I don't think we should bother. Uh, we should, we should uh, waste time reforming things. It's going to reform itself, and that is going to come to. Um, um, uh, falling about Horios very quickly indeed. And indeed, the longer we system, keep the system going, in some way, you could argue the longer we keep the system going, uh, the, 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 the longer the growth will continue, and the greater will be the fall when it eventually happens. The more nuclear power stations will be able to build, 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 build uh, the more forests will be able to cut down, the greater the CO2 uh, accumulations will eventually the crash happens. Um, so there is something to be said, actually, for, uh, for the crash being earlier rather than later. Um. So this is, of course, David sitting up an oak tree with Henrik Dahl having this conversation. And at one point in the full recording, um, I think some jogger comes by or something. What do you think you're doing up there? <laughs> and like starts, starts heckling them. Um, is that available? Um, yeah, the full interview is. Um, I, uh, what should I do with that? How should I make that available? I, can, I mean, we're actually getting some clips edited out of it. Um, at the moment, but I can put a link to the full thing up on my website, which is darkoptimism.org. Um, what year was it? Uh, that was 2010. It was just um, yeah, a month or two before he died. Um, and it, it touches on one of the core things for David, which is that, um, which I have some mixed feelings about, but he, he felt that although this economic system is, as he said, leading to the destruction of the planet, um, he didn't see any point in, in trying to bring it down because we are so utterly dependent on it now. We've forgotten what it is to depend on each other, to depend on culture. We need this, this reskilling, this relearning of how to depend on each other. Um, that if you know, capitalism collapsed tomorrow, we would be on our knees. We would be completely bereft. And so for him, the important thing 
was rebuilding the informal economy, like regrowing that sense of community and integration, because that makes sense, whatever the future scenario is. Um, you know, whether we're heading to a collapsed future or, non or we're not, somehow this system's going to keep staggering on. That's something which, which absolutely makes sense now, and it absolutely makes sense if the mainstream market economy does collapse and we need something else to, to rely on. Um, so, yeah, maybe, um, maybe take a few more thoughts. Yep. Yeah, just yeah, just listening to you read. Oh, the end of war. Come back to that one. Yep. Yeah, so just listening to you read the extracts. It's kind of um, basically think of Ivan Illich, mm -hmm. um, informal economy, shadow economy, and so yeah, I guess the question is, um, how did he see himself? Kind of who, what kind of thinkers and practitioners did he align himself with? <laughs> um, did he use the word commons? Um, did he use that as a handle in reference to the informal economy mm -hmm. and what he saw beyond market economics? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, quite a few hands. Yeah. yeah. Um, which way would he have voted Brexit? <laughs> For Brexit? Well, you know, which way would he have voted in the referendum? Yeah, okay. <coughs> um, Yeah. Um, and I know a little bit about Dark Mountain and probably a little less about Phase 7, but I was just interested in terms of how those two sat together and mm. how that kind of went and, and maybe if you could explain a little bit more about Dark Mountain. Sure. Just one more. Oh. Uh, I've been... Oh, uh, go on, go on. Just get two more there. <laughs> I'd be interested what your views were on technology. We really about that. On technology? Um, yeah, technology. Mm. And um, <coughs> was he a vegan? Because <laughs> that's quite... Uh -huh. <laughs> yep, and one more. Uh, how did you feel about death? Death. Oh, beautiful. Well, I can't resist reading his entry on death because it's brilliant. <laughs> and it's not very long. This is the entry on death from the dictionary. The means by which an ecosystem keeps itself alive selects its fittest, controls its scale, gives peace to the tormented, enables young life, and accumulates a grammar of inherited meaning as generations change places. A natural system lies in tension between life and death. Death is as important to it as life. A lot of death is a sign of a healthy, large population. Too much death is a sign that it is in danger, it is not coping, its terms of coexistence with its habitat are breaking down. Too little death is a sign of the population exploding to levels which will destroy it and the ecology that supports it. No death means that the system is already dead. <laughs> the reduction of life to an icon, the assertion that life, especially human life, is sacred, disconnects the mind from the ecosystem to which it belongs. It is a fertile error. Beneath the exaggerated regard for life lies an impatience with, a disdain for, the actual processes that sustain the ecology that sustains us. Expressing faith in the sanctity of human life is a license in a series of little, well-intentioned, self-evident steps to kill the ecology that supports it. The large-scale system, relying on its size and technology, and making an enemy of death which should be its friend, joins a battle which it cannot win. In systems thinking, Death is sacred.
can pick up on any of those threats or should I? No, I think you, I mean, you, you're much more familiar with yeah, I mean, uh, subvertising, um, ad busters and subvertising, I'm, I'm happy to be recorded saying is one of my great pleasures in life. <laughs> um, the joy of taking a multi-million pound advertising campaign and, you know, scrawling a note in it and marker pen and knowing that everyone who sees it will be on your side, not their side. You have to do it neatly so the children don't see that it's graffiti. Yeah, right, right. So it looks as if it's been printed. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's one of the great joys in life. I love, Banksy said, um, asking for permission to uh, to alter adverts is like um, asking for permission to pick up a rock that someone threw at your head. You know, they didn't ask your permission to throw this stuff into your mind. So, you know, if you want to commandeer it. Yeah, it's public space. It's a great thing. Um, Dark Mountain um, was... Uh, they absolutely loved it. So Dark Mountain is... Uh, <laughs> um, I, they always tell me off if I call it a movement, so I don't know what to call it. Um, Dark Mountain is a space in which um, one of the guys who founded it, Paul Kingsnorth, describes himself as a recovering environmentalist. And what he means by that is that um, he was working for Greenpeace, I think, and he found himself advocating large-scale wind farms. And uh, in this particular case, it was a local community who were really resistant to this large-scale wind farm. And he suddenly woke up one morning and went, when did I end up on the side of pushing these large-scale technologies on a community that's trying to defend its local landscape? Like, what, what, what happened here? How did that come about? Um, and also, particularly, I think, looking at things like climate change and saying, well, to an awful lot of us, it seems like we're not going to avoid runaway catastrophic climate change. And yet we're sort of not ever allowed to admit that or talk about it with anyone ever because that's wrong and we should be hopeful and positive. Um, and Dark Mountain was a space that was created. It's, it's actually a, a, a journal, a book that comes out every six to 12 months. And it's about art and culture and creative writing and what responses people might have to actually asking what it might look like in that place that we're not allowed to talk about. And I think a lot of people have found that a very... Um, a very valuable space to explore some of these things because it can be exhausting to push down the feelings and never, never be able to acknowledge them. Um, and so what Dark Mountain really love is that David, um, he doesn't ever shy away from collapse. You know, he's, very, he's very clear about the fact that we're sort of damned if we do and we're damned if we don't and this system is inevitably heading to collapse and all those halfway houses, as he calls them, are sort of beside the point and what we need to look towards is what's going to make sense after the crash and what can we do now to prepare for that and um, and so actually yeah Dark Mountain really really took to it in a big way and I think I think it was a it was a relatively small gathering of 150 people and I think we sold about 70 books there so a lot a lot of people were really um, really interested in what he had to say also it probably helped that um, uh, the Dark Mountain Journal when I just finished sort of drafting the paperback version they put out a call for submissions for their next issue. And um, the theme for this particular issue was post-cautionary tales. They said, we've heard loads of cautionary tales. We want to know about what happens after we ignore the cautionary tales. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's the first category of any kind that I think Lean Logic actually fits perfectly. <laughs> um, so I had to submit some extracts, and they absolutely loved them. And in fact, they asked for another set for their next edition. So this is probably... Yeah, three years ago now, something like that, they ran some extracts from the dictionary in their, in their journal. Um, so, uh, so some of the people at the Dark Mountain were, were already familiar with it. Um, 
how would David have voted on Brexit is something that Rob and I were briefly discussing just before we turned the mics on. And um, I, I actually, because as I said, I wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me which way I would vote. I did eventually vote in, but just. Um, and uh, I actually emailed Jonathan Porritt, who knew David longer than, I think they were friends for sort of 40 years. Um, and uh, I asked him what he thought David would vote on Brexit. And uh, Jonathan's answer was like, well, it's always a mugs game to imagine that we can predict what David would have said about anything. <laughs> um, but he, he, I mean, there is, a, there is a line in Lean Logic where he says something like the prospects of developing um, a you know, sensible localised future are vastly diminished by supranational entities like the European Union. So he was very critical of a lot of what the European Union does. He would have been, as Jonathan said, he would have been absolutely damning in his criticism of things like TTIP. At the same time, and I was very interested to hear Jonathan say this, he said he, he, he can't, he's never known anyone who would be more proud to stand up and say, I am a European, than David was. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it captures in many ways the nuance. I remember a meme going around just ahead of the vote, and it was like the ballot paper we should have, and it sort of was in and out, and then it was, you know, in, but don't think I've got anything to do with that David Cameron idiots, you know, out, but don't think I'm a racist like Farage, and, you know, all these subtle nuances that were completely scrubbed out by a yes-no thing. I mean, I saw one the other day, actually, that was saying, you know, people are talking about hard Brexit now. If the vote had gone by a small margin the other way and people were talking about hard Remain, where we're going to adopt the euro and we're going to join Schengen and we're going to... That would also be incredibly inappropriate to a, to a vote that was so narrow. Um, and so this whole idea that in and out capture two camps, when I don't think anyone has, you know, maybe some people, but very few people feel completely like, yes, in is me, or yes, out is me, and says everything I want to say about this issue... Um, and so, I th yeah, I think David's probably response was more nuanced, but um, my, my guess, I don't know, I wrote a blog on the eve of Brexit where explaining how I'd come to my decision to vote in, and I said in that that I suspected that David would probably have voted out, but then since I've had more conversations with other people that made me question that, so I don't, I don't think I would presume to speak for him is probably the answer. And then if you've got any here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, influences of David's, I mean, if you pick up one of the books and look at the bibliography, I mean, as Rob said, <laughs> it's just one of the most incredibly widely read people, um, well, the most widely read person I ever encountered. I mean, you know, this, the bibliography, at the insistence of the publishers, is in a relatively small font. And just to give you a sense of, uh, sense of it, there's... And that much of the book is bibliography. Um, so it's like 25 pages of that size text of the number of books that, that are referenced in here. Um, so there was someone, there was someone at one of the events who said, was David influenced by such and such? And I looked in the bibliography and it wasn't there, but that's the only time it's happened. <laughs> um, but certainly, certainly even Illich, and that's certainly a connection a lot of people make. Um, there's a guy who runs a website called Convivial Economics, um, and he wrote to me saying he's been reading this book, and he said, you know, this, he's the master of Convivial Economics. I, you know, it's just amazing to read something that, that integrates so much of this stuff and, and is written so beautifully. He said it was lovely, actually. He ended his thing saying, um, I've now got lean logic on my bedside, and 
currently I find it quite hard to maintain hope with all that's happening in the world. Um, but now when I need to, I pick up Lean Logic and it helps me refine it. Um, the other thing about Lean Logic for me is, and I think I don't, I think he has some of them commissioned specially, but there are some of the most gorgeous, mm. some of the woodcuts. He loved woodcuts. And, uh, Home is a good one. Yeah, the one of the house with the geese. Ah, oh, that one. That's nice. This one. Just gorgeous. Yeah. So there's quite a few kind of woodcuts to here. So he loved that, like sort of craft, handmade, beautiful yeah. craft. Something. Yeah, I saw that one's become your Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Banner. I love it. Um, yeah, and it was actually, I spent about six months on those bloody things because um, David left this one page of scrawled notes because he was right in the middle of working on on the book when he very suddenly died. And um, he left this one page of scrawled notes of all the images he intended to include and all the artists and, you know, no real notice on whether he'd spoken to them or whether... It, so I had to go and track down all of these people and check whether they'd given their permission and fortunately found this wonderful guy, um, Simon Brett, who just published a book on wood engraving in the 21st century. Um, and so he'd already done all this work and said, oh, yeah, don't bother with them, you'll never find them, you know, this person's estate are really helpful, etc. Um, but... Uh, Oh, I've, I've forgotten the end of my anecdote now. That's, that's very inconvenient. Um, hmm, I'll come back to that one. Can I ask you a question? No. <laughs> so, uh, one of the, you know, you were saying about how incredibly well read he was, and he had mm. the most extraordinary library <laughs> that he sort of collected through his life of all yeah. of those. What happened to his library? Um, so, a woman who knew him well, Sarah Nicholl, who you doubtless know as well, um, moved into his place after then for a while and she went through it all and basically tried to rehome as much of it as possible to various places and there were a lot of people who picked up books that he was you know particularly attached to for one reason or another I don't know what the presumable rump that was left I think I seem to remember she said about donating it to some appropriate place but I can't think off the top of my head where it was um, but Sarah Nicholl will be the one who knows the answer to your question um, how much time have we got um, yeah, another quick clip from David, I think. Uh, I haven't forgotten the other two questions, but we haven't got to you. Uh, is this video? No, this is just audio as well. We only had that one video for this one. Um, this is also from, this is just a, a minute and a half, and it's also from the uh, Upper Tree interview. That's not a rude way of putting it. Thinking about people, thinking about, thinking about, um, well, yes, our relationships and 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 not even thinking about our relationships. Well, people don't think about our relationships. I have a good relationship with Facebook, but that's not the part which is the reason why we don't do it. But I don't spend actually really. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about our relationship. We just do it. We just go on with life. You know, I think the best relationships about that. And I think you know, I, I, the, the, the book is all really about getting on with life and crucially getting on in, in, in life is the things that really matter and what, what really matters is music. And music. Yeah. And humour and, <laughs> and, 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 and conversation and uh, painting and the arts and, yeah. and uh, things like that and, 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 and having fun, play yeah. um, and, yeah. and partying about and generally enjoying life. That's what really, really matters. Everything else is just almost like that. Oh, just the, 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 uh, 
Well, so the, the medieval history used to say the only thing that comes records, I can probably go two years ago about that discussion anyway. It is just the foundation. Uh, most of the rest of life is just a foundation on what really matters to the jobs and what really matters uh, is culture and play and music. No difference. No, no, no. <laughs> but the park keeper. Get down. Okay. Um, yeah, and just another minute from him. Um, well, the title, you, you see yourself as an economist with an environmental or a, I don't know, you're, you're interested in... I'm an environmental economist, you could argue. I'm a thinker, but the thing is I do... Uh, uh, my speciality is being a generalist. Uh, my speciality is sort of going out. Uh, it, being, it, in the academic world, this is, this is called this is an extremely long word. Your, 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 your technical will probably crash. Interdisciplinary studies. I will try to. I sort of cover everything. There's almost nothing I don't sort of include in the. In, in lean logic, which is why it's such a long time. So you're a holistic economist? Yes. There's a lot of methodological stuff, actually, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it could be taken to the as well, because it's having to cover such a wide wide front, even with the, even with the systems of that, it can be very difficult to to keep up with what's going on and all these things. If I do keep up, every, I mean, the thing is, as I said, I get, I get close and flat from friends and, and, and people, you know. So pointing in the streets, so you see that poor old fellow over there. Yeah, that one. He's got big he ideas. Yeah, he, he, he'd been writing this. <laughs> he'd been writing this book for the last twenty years. He'll never finish it. <laughs> and then they say, "He's nice fellow. Just don't mention the book." <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got about um, about twenty-five minutes left. So I'm going to start bringing things to a close. But I'm aware we've got a couple of questions we haven't answered. Where was the tree? Where was the tree? It's on Hampstead, Hampstead Heath. Heath. Yeah, which he lived on a flat sort of overlooking Hampstead Heath. Yeah. No, they did, he did find a tree, well not like the bloody thing I climbed on behind <laughs> He did find a tree where there was kind of a very low branch that he kind of perched on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, more graceful descent than I have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to see the tree that you got. <laughs> um... So the, the two questions we had left, I think, are about his relationship with technology and about the end of war. Um, and these are both big themes in the book. Um, but he, um, he talks a lot about conflict and about war and about how we can deal with this. And he's not, um, he's not very simplistic in his responses. It's quite, it's quite nuanced, but I think... Um, one bit that's fairly short that I can read is he's talking about uh, in the future where maybe local communities are in a situation that a lot of people worry about where um, you know, maybe they're sort of sustainable on their local level but they're getting overwhelmed by people from elsewhere or raiders or whatever it might be. Um, and his, uh, his conclu concluding paragraph, although not really his conclusion, is uh, so he's talking about lean defence and what that might be. He says, lean defence then is here in the room, large and unavoidable, an unwelcome need and commitment. So what to do? Well, first of all, don't rush. The first and proper response is, do nothing. Instead, enter the space of reflection, love 
reason, encounter, friendship, ignorance, presence. And almost all of those words have a little star next to them to say that there's a whole other entry on each of those concepts. Here is St. Basil, someone who knew a thing or two about defence, doing just that at a turbulent time in 4th century Caesarea in a letter to the monk Abysseus. So he does this, he just says, oh, there's this guy I remember in the 4th century BC who wrote beautifully on this. Um, he entered that space and called it prayer. And this is a quote from uh, St. Basil. Do please visit us, either to console us or to give advice or to send us on our way but in any case, by the very sight of you, to make us easier at heart. And, most important of all, pray, and pray again, that our reason be not submerged by the flood of evil, but that in all things we may keep ourselves pleasing to God, in order that we may not be numbered among the wicked servants who thank him when he grants blessings, but when he chastises through the opposite means, do not submit. Nay, let us derive benefit even from our very difficulties, Trusting in him the more when we uh, trusting in him the more when we stand the more in need. There is the this is David again. There is the possibility of civilization ahead of us. It will need to be defended with steady humility. Um, I remember having a conversation with him in the pub, where, <laughs> and I think he was winding me up. But you could never quite tell with David. Yeah. Uh, where we were having this cut, where he was where he was talking about. How, uh, how transition groups needed to, uh, uh, about whether towns or communities that are in transition needed to form their own militias or not. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think he was winding me up. <laughs> yeah, there's a section in here where he talks about that kind of thing, and I'm still not sure to what extent he's winding so Someone, one of the reviewers of the book said, when you read this, it feels like the author is winking at you continually. <laughs> And I must say, it's come up a few times, but I think David was the funniest person I ever knew in my life. And I, but yeah. not always completely intentionally. You can never quite tell <laughs> whether he was laughing at himself or quite what it was. But so it just, yeah, I nearly died sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, Rob, whether you have any kind of summing up threads. I want to give the last word to David, but... Um, like whether anything emerges from all this, or I could read a bit while you think about that. Um. No, I just, I, I just, I feel like he's, um, he was one of the really seminal influences on my life, and I feel hugely grateful to have encountered him. And, uh, and I know as well, he was, he was, uh, the thing that was really lovely about David was he was a man of massive intelligence, but he was hugely humble with it as well, and he was and, and he was and, and he was insatiably curious. I think one of the reasons why he never finished the book was because he was so curious, and it's a bit like that episode in Blackadder where where uh, the guy's written the first. Uh, first dictionary and is very pompous about it and then Blackadder keeps saying oh, well you must be feeling terribly perspicacious he was continually sort of uh, and, and he loved being around kind of young people exploring new ideas and he was very active in transition bell size in London and they used to have lots of meetings in his flat and he loved coming to the transition network conferences and just being around and just sort of feeling part of something that was kind of resonated with his ideas and rather than being sort of 
like some academics who kind of come in and, you know, they, they've got their take on it. You know, he was very, very open for debate and very open for discussion, fascinated uh, with new ideas. And there was a book that I wrote where I dedicated the front, that's something like, to the two of, two of the 20th century's great geniuses, David Fleming and Captain Beefheart who were as, as unalike as you can imagine, <laughs> but, who, but who both just carved their own... Would it be a conversation worth seeing? I'd, love to, have, I'd <laughs> love to have seen them in a room together. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so firstly, my enormous gratitude to David. He was a really formative influence for me, uh, and again to you for, for creating this, because I think it's, it's, it's so wonderful to have that all in one place. Mm. Mm. So, um, yeah, there are a few, or a couple of uh, brief readings that I think touch on some of what we've, what we've, uh, what we've discussed tonight. Um, and one is this entry on success. Do you really think we will get through this crisis and come in due course to a time of resilience and manners? Don't answer that question. For you may discover to your cost that your answer is either a self-fulfilling or a self-denying truth, and that both count against us. If we deny that there is a livable future, then we will do little to secure one. If we affirm it, we come into other troubles, such as complacency, an optimistic view that what we are doing now is all that is needed, an iconic focus on the simple solution, or the constant anxiety of life on the edge between hope and doubt. Positive thinking seems to be the right thing in the circumstances until you notice the wreckage. <laughs> Instead, think of what happened to Orpheus and Eurydice. Eurydice, you may remember, died after having been bitten by a snake, and Orpheus went down into the underworld to recover her. The goddess Persephone agreed to let her go, on condition that Orpheus did not look back at her as she followed him. Unfortunately, he forgot about this condition. He did look back with the result that Eurydice vanished forever and Orpheus was torn to pieces by angry women who threw his head into the river Hebros where it floated downstream still singing. That is, make the intense commitment at walking pace, plod on, climb steeply uphill out of the underworld, keep your eyes fixed ahead. You never know, you might get there, you might even find out where there is and you might inspire others to come with you. Just don't look back. We do not need to choose between hope and expectation. What matters is to keep hope alive, which we won't succeed in doing if we are constantly checking up on it. It is not certainty that sustains our focus, but the ambiguity that comes to us, for instance, in the prayer from another ancient moment of commitment against the odds. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And, um, yeah, okay, this one's a slightly briefer version. Um, again, another of his, um, his logical fallacies is uh, implicature. The presence of a subtext, another meaning, which makes a statement not quite as simple or as innocent as it looks. Examples. What did you think of the singer? I liked her dress. <laughs> We are tackling the problem of global warming. There's nothing wrong with the statement itself, but it implies that we're on the way to solving the problem. It may also be taken to imply that we can do the job on our own. 
It sounds reassuring, but it may be telling you that the efforts to tackle global warming are not having much success. The philosopher Paul Grice, who coined the word implicature, pointed out that it is commonplace in conversation and comes in many forms. Given its potential to mislead, he argued for a code of good conduct in communication, which he called the cooperative principle. Be as formative as required, but no more. Do not say things which you believe to be false or for which you have no evidence. Be relevant. Avoid obscurity and ambiguity. Be brief and orderly, except when you're not. Lean logic advocates asides, long-windedness if it comes with the story. Frank untruths if there is a reasonable chance that the other person can untangle the irony. Broken logic if it reflects the difficulty of explaining things which break your heart or are hard to understand. It does not share the modest self-restraint which we find in Psalm 131, which reads, I do not exercise myself in great matters which are too high for me. Lean logic finds that when dealing with great matters, it can from time to time be a good thing if there are cracks and faults in the argument, for the repair of which help is invited. It is a reminder that a conversation is a cooperative affair, not just a series of beautifully manicured statements. And that, I think, is really what's so interesting about the structure of this dictionary, is that he... You know, people say, well, it's, where do you start? Where do you finish? Where do you go? And there's a, a lovely part in his introduction where he says, well, hold on, how on earth do you deal with such a book? And part of what he says is, um, links between the entries are suggested. It may, help it may help to make sense of one idea when you know something about related ones from which more links extend without any guarantee that you will discover a place where the logical sequence starts. It is perhaps like arriving in a group or a community. You learn about its members and their relationships with each other by being in the middle of it. There is no beginning or end. The more you know the group, the more you yourself become part of it and part of its story. It is a story about the shared experience of something discovered, something discussed, something done. And that's sort of why this weird structure is the way it is, because he wasn't having it that he should be up on some podium telling you what to do. His whole philosophy was about people getting together and figuring out themselves what to do. And so he even managed to find a way of writing a book which forced you to get involved with the process of reading and to find your own way through it rather than just sitting there and, and passively receiving. And I think that in itself is quite, a, quite an ingenious thing. And, um, yeah, the last reading that I will offer... Many other readings are available at the table over here. Um, is, uh, <laughs> reflects one of the challenges I had in, in editing this book out of this book, um, which is that I realised probably about two-thirds of the way through figuring out the structure of this that dictionaries don't have an ending and conventional books have an ending and how on earth was I going to find an ending for the book? Um, and the approach... I took in the end was to create an epilogue from a number of his entries in the dictionary. And uh, this is part of it. The great transformation has already happened. It was the revolution in politics, economics and society that came with the market economy and which hit its stride in Britain in the late 18th century. Most of human history has been bred, fed and watered by another sort of economy, but the market has replaced, as far as possible, 
the social capital of reciprocal obligation, loyalties, authority structures, culture and traditions, with exchange, price and the impersonal principles of economics. Unfortunately, the critics of economics have had a tendency to discuss the whole structure as a tissue of misconceptions. It is a critique that fails. The strength of economics is its considerable, if far from complete, understanding of the flows and comparative advantages that underlie trade, jobs, capital and incomes, and the logic of optimising behaviour, all backed by glittering accomplishments in mathematics. That makes it a powerful analytical instrument, so that just a few misconceptions, such as a failure to understand the informal economy or resource depletion, can have leverage. Like a baby monkey at the controls of a Ferrari, they can turn it into an instrument with extraordinarily destructive potential. If it were a tissue of errors, it would not be dangerous. It is its 90% brilliance which makes it so. Indeed, the government's main task in a mature market economy is to keep it free of obstacles that might stop it growing. Like a bemused farmer would treat the enchanted goose, keep the foxes out so that it can go on magically laying its golden eggs. <laughs> the market's achievements and answers sound authoritative and final, but what is truly most significant about them is how naive they are. If the flow of income fails, the powerfully bonding combination of money and self-interest will no longer be available on its present all-embracing scale, and perhaps not at all. And it must inevitably fail, as the market's taught competitiveness demands ever-increasing productivity and thus relies on the impossibility of perpetual growth. In the meantime, the reduction of a society and culture to dependence on mathematical abstraction has infantilised a grown-up civilization and is well on the way to destroying it. Civilizations self-destruct anyway, but it is reasonable to ask whether they have done so before with such enthusiasm. And in obedience to such an acutely absurd superstition, while claiming with insistence that they were beyond being seduced by the irrational promises of religion, every civilization has had its irrational but reassuring myth. Previous civilizations have used their culture to sing about it and tell stories about it. Ours has used its mathematics to prove it. Yet, when this relatively short-lived market society is gone, we will miss its essential simplicity, its price mechanism, its self-stabilising properties, its impersonal exchange, the comforts it delivers to many and the freedoms it underwrites. Its failure will be destructive. And the end is in sight. During the early decades of the century, the market will lose its magic. It is the aim of lean logic to suggest some principles for repairing or replacing the atrophied social structures on which most human cultures were built as the basis for a cohesive society that might survive the turbulent times to come. And on that note, Rob, a little surprise for you, um, which is um, a line from David which um, speaks a lot to your work, um, and which I just want to close with. Based on that, it's, it's saying actually it, it treating human beings with 
respect for people having mm. imagination, to use your word, and intelligence and judgment and imagination. Mm. And what we're doing is unleashing, the great unleashing that I'm interested in is unleashing the imagination mm. um, uh, of, of, of people so they can get on and build their own future, which I think is, I think a lot of people are prepared, are prepared to do. And the transition movement is an indication of how prepared they are. So, yeah, as you were kind enough to thank me, I thank you for having taken David's legacy and really, you know, run with it into <laughs> something that's really wonderful and that I'm very proud to be a part of and um, an awful lot of people are very proud to be part of. So thank you, world, as well. Thank you all for being here. Uh, yeah, and uh, if you're interested in these strange books, then um, they're available for sale over there, and I'm sure we'll be happy to sign them or talk to you about things as much as you like. Sean, is it worth saying anything about the next couple of workshops? Yeah, and actually, one other thing I really must mention is, um, is that uh, in February, um, Rob and I and Mark Boyle, moneyless Mark Boyle, as he's well known, um, will be running a week's course on David Fleming's work and his legacy at Schumacher College. Um, so that's the uh, 6th to the 10th of February next year, and you can find all the details of that on the, um, on the Schumacher College short course, on the short course section of the Schumacher College website.